So over the next several weeks, we have a scattered series. Um, You've heard a sermon series where we work uh, consecutively through a theme or through our text. This is a scattered series, which means that we have a week where we'll preach the sermon here, and then a few weeks we'll preach the next installment of the series, and then so on and so forth. Um, You can know when we're going to preach the next installment by showing up. Uh, that's kind of how that works. Um, you come and you'll, you'll find out when you get here when we're going to preach the next installment. But this is about choices that we make as Christians. And there's five choices that we must intentionally make. And um, choices are, are uh, they're everyday. They're everyday occurrences for us. And as Christians, we have choices that we have to make. Just as a point of personal illustration, there's a choice that's happening um, in my family's life, and it's probably happened in yours, it's the choice of when to put up Christmas decorations. I shouldn't, I shouldn't jump to any conclusions. I've driven around this community long enough to see that some of you just never make that choice. You just leave your decorations up year-round. Um, and so on behalf of your HOA and neighbors, thank you. Uh, thank you for, for uh, making us all look trashy. Um, <laughs> that's a little funny that I said that from the pulpit. And I'll, get a, and I'll get a note that says, don't say things like that from the pulpit. Okay, they're probably right. So we're moving forward. Um, but you decide when you should put up uh, Christmas de- uh, decorations in our home. This is a conversation that goes on and on. My wife is under the persuasion that Christmas decorations should go up at the first hint of any meteorologist around the globe suggesting that cold weather may be coming. My wife's like, Cold weather's coming, we've got to decorate for Christmas. And I'm like, Carly, do you think we maybe should at least let like, the kids go back to school for the fall semester before we decorate? She's like, no, it's time, let's do it. Um, in my household, the way that I grew up under Christian principle was that we should, not, we should not start decorating until Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving week and weekend, that's like, that is, that is the unbiblical but God-given deadline to begin decorating for Christmas. So over the past couple of weeks, um, we've had to, we've started the conversation of when we're going to decorate. And and that conversation was primarily sparked by some of you um, people posting on social media, your house is decorated in Christmas before Thanksgiving. And so my wife comes to me with this conversation and she has like documented evidence that it's okay to start decorating for Christmas. And I'm like, Carly, she's, and she's making a convincing case. All right. Convincing case. And I'm like, Carly, we, Thanksgiving. Like it has been, it is, and it will always be the time when you're allowed to start decorating. Thanksgiving. And all Jesus lovers say, Amen. Amen. So we, I'm standing firm. I'm standing firm in this conversation we're having this week. We are not decorating Thanksgiving. And so I, the man of the house, I set the tone. I establish it. And yesterday morning when I was carrying the Christmas boxes up from the basement, (laughs) I had the opportunity to think about other choices that we get to make as Christians. (laughs) And the choice that I want to talk to you about today is the choice for evangelism, the choice to share the good news of Jesus Christ, the, the opportunity. Because you see, every day we face choices. And for Christians, a critical choice is to share the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is a primary statement that I want you to grasp. We make all sorts of choices, but you need to understand that it's critical. It's critical. Critical means that it's a non-negotiable, that it's an essential responsibility that we have to share the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason that it's critical is twofold. One, because you need to share in order to be obedient to Jesus Christ. 
And number two, because this is, we live in communities filled with people that need us to share. And if the Christians aren't sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, who is? There's nobody else that's going to do it. I mean, we can't leave it up to the lost to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't depend on culture. I don't know if you've watched the news lately, but the news channels, they're not just breaking at the seams to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if someone's going to share it, who does that have to be? It's got to be the Christians. But the problem is, is that Christians have a complicated approach to evangelism. Uh, On the one hand, we just don't think about it every single day. Now, I have a PhD in philosophy with an emphasis in evangelism. According to a piece of paper that somewhere in a folder, somewhere in my house, they call it a diploma, but it's stuck somewhere, I'm supposed to be an expert in evangelism. But I'll tell you, when I wake up every morning, the first thing that comes to my mind is not, hey, can I find some lost people to share the gospel with? Usually the first thing that comes to my mind is, ah, are we doing this again? Look at the noise. Where's my coffee? So as a result, we have to make an intentional choice. All right, and I'm telling you this, but hopefully as a word of encouragement, if the pastor of a church doesn't wake up thinking I need to share the gospel, then, then you're not to be blamed either. Therefore, we need to make the intentional decision. I'm going to share the word of God. And we need to think about it, not as, a, not as a burden or something that we begrudgingly do, but really as a blessing. It's a blessing to share the word of God. I mean, I mean, here are two clear reasons why it's a blessing to share the word of God and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first reason is because it's a miracle that God would entrust you and me with his son's reputation. I don't know about you, but I was a fantastic sinner. I mean, I was so good at being lost before I got saved. Like, there were few people that could be a better lost person than me. But God chose, out of his mercy and his grace, God chose to call me to himself. He chose to save me from my sin. And I didn't bring anything to the table but my sin. He chose to save me from my sin. And then, get this. Not just was he going to call me and to save me, but then he entrusted me to be his primary messenger with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like I demonstrated year after year after year that I was an untrustworthy creation of his, but not only did he create me, call me, and save me, but now he trusted me again with his own reputation. It's a miracle that any of us are called to evangelize and that God would want us to be his first choice. But we are. We are his first and only choice for reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How could we be burdened by such a blessing? Here's another reason that it's a blessing to share. We have the only good news that can save this world from everything they're suffering from. (laughs) There's nothing else. This is a culture that's starving to death for any semblance of truth, and we just happen to have it. We live in a world and with people that are desperate and they're lonely and they're tired of grudging through darkness and we happen to know the way out. And we think, oh, how could I go and share the gospel with them? Because you have the gospel. You have the good news. I just can't believe I have to do... You you can't believe you have to go tell someone the good news so that they don't have to die and go to hell? 
Like how difficult is it to just say, I'm going to go and tell someone that they don't have to spend eternity in hell burning in agony, but they get to live in heaven in perfect peace. That shouldn't be such a tragic assignment. But for some reason, we flipped it to think that it's begrudging obligation that we have rather than a blessed opportunity that's given to us. But sharing the word and and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, like it's a good assignment that we have. God has entrusted us with this assignment and we just happen to have the only good news that's really out there right now. So we want to evangelize. What is evangelism specifically? There's a couple of definitions that I want to bring to your attention before we jump into the study of this passage. Evangelism is, as R.T. Uh, Niles says, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Like this is what evangelism is. You say, well, what does it mean to evangelize? What does it mean to, um, to share my faith? Well, it just means that you go to one beggar, one starving person, and you tell them where you found food. You found them... Jesus Christ, Bill Bright, uh, founder of Campus Crusade Ministry, he really gives what I believe to be the strongest technical definition of evangelism. It's one that I've been using for many, many years and I continue to give out today. Evangelism is sharing Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results up to God. Like that helps me with evangelism because I used to think about evangelism and we'll get to this in more detail in a moment. I used to think about evangelism as this is this frightful thing. Like I have to go and convince someone to believe in Jesus Christ, but that's not what evangelism is. Evangelism is simply sharing Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results up to God. Like he does the saving. I just need to do the sharing. In the book of Acts, specifically we're looking today at verses one through eight. Let me just catch you up to the context of the passage. The book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are before it. Those are the gospels. But the book of Acts is actually Luke's second letter. So you've heard of the gospel of Luke. Um, Luke's second letter is called the book of the Acts. The point of the book of Acts or the theme of the book is to share how the early church expanded under the activity of the Holy Spirit and through the actions of the Holy Spirit to reach the world at that time with the gospel. So it's the New Testament church, this nucleus in Jerusalem, having the Holy Spirit in them and then them reaching Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then reaching out to the ends of the world. This is the thematic component in the book of Acts. Now specifically where we are in Acts chapter 8, we have, just walking us back, Chapter 1, you have Jesus Christ who has been resurrected. He's with his disciples and he tells them just before he ascends into heaven that you're going to be my disciples, you're going to be my witnesses, my Holy Spirit is coming upon you and then I want you to go and share this truth with everyone. And then Jesus Christ ascends up into the clouds and he tells them, I will come back for you in the same way that I left you. So we're to look on high because Jesus will return the same way that he ascended. He will descend when the Father says it's time. Following that, the disciples and others, they get together, they pray. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on them. Peter stands in chapter 2 and preaches the first sermon under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 men get saved. We see the New Testament church coming together and practicing some of the basic elements and some of the fundamental pillars of the Christian church, which is evangelism and fellowship and discipleship and missions and worship, just happen to be the five points in this sermon series that we're preaching. 
And then we see the disciples and other Christians participating in these awesome ministries of preaching and performing healings and further um, elements of evangelistic growth. And the church is growing, it's budding, and as the church is growing, so are, coming up to the surface, opponents of Christianity. The same Jews that crucified Jesus Christ are now religious leaders who are trying to snuff out the church of Jesus Christ, this Christian church in Jerusalem. To such a point that one of the Christians, name is Stephen, he's called before the religious opponents, and the opponents question Stephen. Stephen preaches a message at him, and then they stone Stephen in front of everyone. They throw rocks at Stephen until he is no more. And then we get to chapter 8, where we are here. One of the primary opponents that was present for Stephen's stoning is a man named Saul. He rises up. He brings persecution onto the church. He goes from home to home and he's searching every house to see if there's any Christians in the home. And if he finds any evidence of a Christian being in the home, he takes them and he commits them to prison. Then we get to chapter 4. In chapter, chapter 8 verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So as the people are scattered, what are they doing? They're preaching the word and they're sharing Jesus Christ. This is the call. No matter what is going on in your life, you are called to go about sharing the word and preaching Jesus Christ. Now I want to share with you four hindrances that we can gather from this passage. Four factors that hinder us from sharing the gospel or participating in evangelism. The first that I want to share with you is fear. How many of you would share the gospel, we would evangelize more if you didn't have some semblance of fear in your life. I mean, that's been true for me. Like, I want, I, sometimes I want to share the gospel, but I'm just sort of fearful. Like, what if they say no? Like, what if I go to share the gospel and they say no? There would have been an element of fear in Philip and the other Christian's life that, just like us, like, what if the person says no? But I want to show you something. And I pray that this brings a sense of relief to your ministry and to your life. Look with me at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Just turn over a few pages to the left very quickly. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we have this passage of scripture. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. He's given kind of a final commissioning and command, final set of instructions to the Christians. And he says this, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So you're going to receive power when you get the source of power, which is the Holy Spirit. And then when you do... You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. So when you receive power, Jesus says you're going to become what? My witnesses. Now let me ask you this. What is a witness's job? A witness's job is simply to tell the truth of their story. Now in a court of law, a witness is not responsible for convincing the jury in which way to decide. They're simply responsible for telling the truth of their story. A witness is not responsible for issuing the verdict from the judge's seat. They're simply responsible for telling their story. The witness is not responsible for changing anyone's mind. They're simply responsible for ch telling the truth of their story. And I want to tell you, in evangelism, your responsibility is to tell the truth of the story of Jesus Christ. 
You're not responsible for changing anybody's heart. You're not responsible for convincing people to receive Jesus in their life. You're simply responsible for telling the truth of Jesus Christ. And as a church, we should, we should come to celebrate a culture of sharing. Now, certainly, we want to applaud and celebrate as people walk an aisle. We want to applaud and celebrate when people are baptized in the baptistry. But we also should celebrate believers who come forward and say, listen, I don't know if so-and-so is going to come to faith, but I told them this week about Jesus Christ. And we should lose it. I mean, we should be so excited that someone was faithful in the primary task of every disciple's life, which was to tell somebody about Jesus Christ. We should lose our cool that people are going out and they're doing the one thing Jesus called us to do, which was to be a witness. We should take some of the emphasis off of forcing people towards conversion and we should put some emphasis on celebrating that people are simply being witnesses. Just tell the story. Here's another factor that sometimes hinders us from sharing the faith and that is hurt. We've all been hurt and those experiences regularly control our minds and our actions. And anytime we have to put ourselves out there to be a witness, we face the potential of being hurt again. Philip and the Christians from Jerusalem, they were run out of their homes by Saul's persecution. Many of them grew up in their homes. They had their businesses there. They had their lives there. And they, without any warning, were displaced we go back to Acts chapter 8 to see specifically in the text. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Acts chapter 8 verse 4. They were scattered, which means that Paul came in with a surprise attack. And these people were run out of their homes. Everything that they had was left behind. And they would have been scattered with a sense of helplessness and full of hurt. Some of you would love to share the gospel, but every time you think about stepping out, in boldness, the enemy will remind you of all the hurt that's in your life and you just can't stand the thought of, what if I get hurt again? And I get that your fear and your experience of hurt is real. But I want to tell you that God may just use the hurt that you're experiencing and the story that you have as a common connection with someone else in this world that's hurting just as bad. And he may use that experience as an opportunity to share the gospel with someone and say, hey, listen, friend, I know that you're hurting. I'm hurt too. But I want to tell you the answer to your hurt is Jesus Christ. Another factor that may hinder your sharing is comfort. We are creatures of comfort. We like to be comfortable. And we like to take steps towards comfort and steps away from discomfort. Paul, uh, Philip, and the other Christians, as they are displaced from Jerusalem, no one would have blamed him or any of the others if they would have sought to just get where they're going, to get settled, and to redevelop this sense of comfort around their lifestyle before they started to share. I mean, so many times, like even with my family, we've been here for about 10 weeks now, and people will say, when you get your feet under you, let's do this, or when you get settled, let's do this. And that's the idea of, hey, whenever you get comfortable, then let's step out. And so often, that's what we want to do. We want to seek that we have our comfort first, and then we're willing to step out and to do the things that we need to do. But that's not the example that Philip and the church have here. They are displaced. They are hurt. They have no sense of stability, but they make the decision that despite them being scattered, they're going to continue sharing the gospel. 
And my friends, we should, we should seek moments of discomfort if it means that we get the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who are going to spend eternity uncomfortable in hell. I mean, we, we have to step beyond our comfort. I read a, a story about a guy named Rico Tice. He was writing a book. And he talks about one of the greatest regrets that he has. And he tells the story of being at his grandmother's bedside in her final moments of life and feeling convicted to share the gospel with his grandmother. So he's at the bedside of his grandmother. And he said that he felt like he needed to share the gospel with her, but he didn't want to jeopardize her final moments of comfort or jeopardize his reputation as grandmother's eyes, so he chose not to share the gospel with her. And in his book, he says, this is one of my greatest moments because to my knowledge, my grandmother died a lost person because I was scared to jeopardize my comfort. He is saying, quote, I loved my grandmother and she loved me, but the hard truth is that I loved myself more than her. You know, when we choose our comforts over the opportunity to share the gospel, we are telling whoever it is the Lord has led us to share with that we love ourselves more than we love them. Here's a final factor. A fourth factor that hinders us from sharing is prejudice. We prejudge others and allow those predeterminations to influence whether or not we share the gospel with them. Philip and the other Christians, they were Jerusalem Christians. Most of them grew up in Jerusalem. They lived in Jerusalem. Their lives were in Jerusalem. And as, Jewish, uh, as Jerusalem Jews, they would have had a deep-seated disdain for Samaritans. Now, Philip and these other Christians, they were scattered to Judea, or Christians were scattered to Judea and Samaria, but Philip and a few other Christians were scattered specifically. They went to Samaria to the place where there were Samaritans that they didn't like at all. And we've heard this. Some of you have heard that for a long time. Jews don't like Samaritans. Just a quick show of hands. How many of you have always heard that? Jews don't like Samaritans. But why don't they like the Samaritans? Well, just a quick history overview of why they don't like them. Back in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. You had the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom. The North Kingdom had a, uh, it had a capital in Samaria, and the Southern Kingdom, the Kingdom of Judah, it had a capital in Jerusalem. The Northern Kingdom was captured by the Assyrians, and the Lower Kingdom, the Southern Kingdom, about 200 years later, was captured by the Babylonians. These are the exiles that we talk about in the Old Testament. Well, the northern kingdom with its capital in Samaria, when those Jews were captured by the Assyrians, they went into exile and they did what they should have never done. They adopted the practices and religions of the Assyrian people, including marrying across the cultural line to this other nation. And the Lord had always told the people to remain holy, to remain separate. Even when other influences come, I'm your God, you're my people, remain consecrated. Well, the northern kingdom didn't do that. And the southern kingdom of Jews said, we resent these people for betraying the covenant that we have with God. And so when the Babylonians came to capture the southern kingdom and to put them in exile, those Jews decided that they were not going to betray the covenant and they maintained their faith, they maintained their separateness, and they maintained their lifestyle. And for over 800 years, seven to 800 years, 
the northern kingdom Jews, Samaritans, and the lower kingdom Jews, now represented by this Jerusalem group, they have had generation after generation of disdain for each other. The southern ones uh, were disgusted with the northern Jews because they betrayed their covenant of God, and the northern Jews were disgusted with the southern Jews because they thought they were better than them. And so this hatred between the Jews and Samaritans has just grown year after year after year after year, generation after generation. And now Philip goes with other Jewish Christians and he is put in a position, well, I step across a prejudice that has been deeply ingrained in my life in order to share the gospel with these people. And I want to tell you today, church, that one of the greatest hindrances to us sharing our faith are prejudices that we hold. And just to be very clear, We must step across racial lines to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must step across every racial line. And we're not just talking about white and black lines. We're talking about white and Hispanic or white and Indian lines. We're talking about every racial line needs to be stepped across to share the gospel. And we must make the intentional choice to step across that line. Another line that we must step across is the socioeconomic line. We can never think, please hear me, we can never think about how much someone has or how much someone doesn't have before we make a decision on whether or not we're going to share the gospel with them. If we only reserve the seats in our church for rich people, the Lord will take the seats in this church away, and he should. We must seek to share the gospel with those that are wealthy and those that are poor and everyone in between because everyone needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's another line of prejudice that we must step across, and that's the gender line. Now, we believe as Bible-believing Christians who follow Jesus Christ and we accept God's word as the truth that God has created man and woman, two options, But we live in a world with many generations now that are confused to think that there are more than two gender options and that that gender option can be picked and chosen at will without discrimination. And even though we don't affirm those gender decisions or that gender fluidity, we still must step across the line to tell the truth to people who need to hear the truth. We cannot allow, listen, we cannot allow our discomfort in meeting with and talking to people who are persuaded in a way that is an antithetical approach to God's will or God's design, we can't allow that discomfort to keep us from going to them with the truth. Because if we don't tell them the truth, who will? The most loving thing we can do is to tell someone in love the truth about God, God's will, God's design, and his gift of Jesus Christ. We have to step across the line. And here's another one. Not only is it racial and socioeconomic and gender lines, but also the prejudice we have towards sexual orientation. We have to step across the line to people who are same-sex attracted or committed to same-sex relationships and practicing those. Listen, people are dying and going to hell under the persuasion that you get to just have a loving, intimate, physical relationship with anyone you want outside of the covenant design that God's given us. And the most loving thing we can do is to go to people who are struggling with that sin and say, listen, God has an answer and his name is Jesus Christ. 
And we're coming to you with the gospel, not because we want to beat you up or we want to expose you or we want to, to, to flaunt how wrong you are and how right we are. We're not coming to you because we want to, to make your life more difficult. We're coming to you because we don't want you to go to hell in your sin. And we believe that Jesus Christ can rescue you from all that you're dealing with. And how do we know? Because he saved me. Because he found me and he saved me. And we cannot allow our prejudice to hinder us from sharing the gospel. We have to make an intentional decision to go and to tell the truth. Philip and the Jerusalem Jews, as they're scattered, they're sharing the word of God. They're telling people, and here are the results. Look at the results with me. Looking at verse 7. The first result that we see in this evangelistic enterprise of the sharing of the gospel is we see that spirits are cleaned. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. Spirits are clean. So there's only two options. You're either demonic or you're saved. Sometimes I think that we misunderstand and we want to think that our... Um, that our spirit is just sort of living in limbo and it's up for grab. But you're either living under the authority and persuasion of the dark spiritual forces or you're living under the influence and fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. It's either darkness or light. There's no middle ground. Darkness is the absence of light and light is the absence of darkness. It's because Jesus Christ has come and he is in your life and he has shown out or sent out, cast away, pushed away the darkness. And so the spirits of unsaved people are really spirits that are living in the demonic or under demonic control. And until you have Jesus Christ in your life, you are living under the possession of darkness. And when Philip and the Christians, they go into Samaria and they start preaching the gospel, it says that spirits are clean, that spirits are set free, and the darkness is coming out of them. And this is at risk if we're not sharing the gospel. That the community that we have, that the people that we love will continue to live in a spirit of darkness, but we can see by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can see their hearts, their spirits cleaned. Secondly, we see bodies healed. The second result of choosing to share is that bodies were healed. We look back at verse 7 again. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, they came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so, people were physically being healed. Now, you might ask, and we're not going to go too deep in this, but you might ask, so if we share the gospel, can we expect people to become physically healed? A couple of responses. Number one, at this particular period of time, Jesus Christ has just uh, lived a sinless life. He was crucified on a cross. He was buried in a borrowed grave. He was resurrected from the grave three days later as he said he would be. And this was an exceptional time where the gospel was being solidified in the minds and the hearts of people. And the scripture tells us that many of the miracles that took place were to show that Jesus was the Christ. This is in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, if you're wondering. That many of the signs that were performed were to prove that Jesus was the Christ and still with the first apostles, proving that Jesus was the Christ. All right? So this is an exceptional time in history. Also, we ask this. So does that mean that God can still perform miracles? Yes. 
Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. God would not be God if he wasn't capable of performing miracles today like he did then. And there are persuasions where people say that the, the miraculous have ceased. Others would lean towards the other way and said the miraculous continue. I'm just telling you that God is still capable of performing miracles when he chooses to. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't demote the miracle of spiritual salvation because we don't see the physical healing. We should never forget that God saving a soul from eternity in hell is the greatest miracle that there is. Because it took his one and only son, Jesus Christ, being raised from the grave to accomplish that miracle in our lives. In this instance, we see bodies healed. Finally, we see hearts delivered. The third result of choosing to share is that hearts are delivered. The final verse, verse 8 of this passage says, There was much joy in that city. There was much joy. In other words, if it's a recordable feature... If it's a notable feature that the author, Luke, writes in the book of Acts that the city was filled with joy, that must mean that there was a lack of joy before then. See, when we share the gospel, joy is shared. That People understand and they receive joy in their hearts. And I'll tell you, there is a clear lack of joy in many people's lives. I mean, folks far and wide around this area, like they just have this, this permeating sadness about them. I mean, they they're grumpy, they're pessimistic. When they, they, they smile, it's forced at best. They feel like they just have to go day after day, but they're, they are at best just a hollow shell of sadness. But the good news of Jesus Christ brings life like they've never experienced before and can never experience outside of Jesus. And when they're freed from the depression and the, the hurt of the guilt and shame of their sins, when they're freed from that by the glorious good news of Jesus Christ, they're able to experience joy for the very first time. But without Jesus setting us free from our sins, we cannot simply be joyful. But when we share the good news of Jesus Christ, people can experience joy. When you came in, you should have received uh, this card. It's a membership card. Did you, did you receive this? I hope you did. Some of you did. Most of you did. I have a copy of it up on the screen. This membership card, you were asked when you came in just to hold on to this card. Some of you went ahead and filled it out, unsurprising. But you should have received a membership card. Do we have any more of these? Do we have any extras? If you did not get one of these cards, would you raise your hand? We want you to have one of these because I want to show you. Raise your hand if you didn't get a membership card. Anyone? We got a few. We got a couple in the balcony. If you didn't get one, our, our ushers just got nervous. They, they got nervous and didn't want to talk to you. So look at it as a compliment. All right, I want to show you. This is, let me show you something, okay? If you share the gospel with someone and invite them to make a decision to receive Jesus as their Savior and then to come to church, we want them to be saved and then we want them to be baptized. We'll talk about baptism in upcoming weeks, what it means, why it is an important 
first step of obedience after you get saved. And then we want them to join the church. We're not going to talk too deeply about joining the church, but essentially you need to be a member of a church. And what that decision, among other things, what that decision says is I'm depending on this family and this family can depend on me from this day forward until the Lord leads, leads us elsewhere. Like we're going to be committed ministers in this ministry. We're going to participate. We're going to pray. We're going to provide support. And when we get into situations where we need support, this is who we're going to trust to help support us through those seasons. So when you bring them forward, you'll say, hey, how can, what can we do? Well, for, receive Jesus, and then we want you to come to our church, and we want to invite you to join our church. And when you step out during the invitation, when you step out of your aisle and you step forward, and you get to the end of the aisle, if you come forward to profess Jesus Christ or for baptism or for another decision to join the church, we're going to sit down and fill out this card. Let me show you this. It's a, it's a very simple card. At the top, it says minister assisting to and whether or not we took your picture. Um, that's just kind of our, our way to keep record um, of who you are. And so we'll take your picture. We'll assign uh, a minister to you. And then we get to the logo. And then we've got the date and the service that you came forward at. And then we see all information required. Uh, we'll write your name down, your address, and then your home phone and your cell phone. How many of you still have a home phone? Bless your hearts. Good for you. Then your email, we'll write your email. If you don't have a home phone, we'll write your email address down. Um, and then your birth date. And then if you're under 18, we're going to ask you for your parents' names. And that's just a point of responsibility so that we make sure that we can connect with your family. And then it says makes a decision, makes the following decisions. Now, let me show you what these mean, because some of you don't know what this means. So I just want to explain it to you. This will be helpful for all of us. Rededicates life to Christ is option one. We're going to focus kind of on that list to the left, the boxes to the left. Okay, so rededicates life to Christ. How many of you ever heard that term, rededicate your life to Christ? Okay, there is no biblical precedent that this is a, that this is a decision that we make. All right. There's nothing that says, um, once you get saved that you can take your salvation back and then you need to give it back to God. The scriptures tells us that when you come to faith, the Holy Spirit seals you for the day of eternity and that the Lord holds you in his hand. So unless you're strong enough to wrestle your salvation out of the hand of the creator, God, you can't lose your salvation and, and no offense, but I haven't seen any of you that look strong enough to do that. All right. So rededicating your life could imply that you somehow got your life back and now you wanted to give it to God again. If you're in that boat, I would, I would offer that maybe you consider whether or not you were ever saved to begin with. But still we use this term to describe people who professed Jesus Christ, were forgiven of their sins by faith in him, were baptized by immersion and followed him, but for some reason chose to live wayward for an extended season of time and they need to come back and publicly repent of a life of sin. All right. The second box is desires membership by baptism. So someone has received Jesus as their savior. They believe that they're a sinner. They want to confess their sin and receive forgiveness of their sins by placing their faith in Jesus Christ. And then they understand that they want to follow through in believers baptism, which means to be baptized after getting saved. We saw an example of that this morning. So if you want to join the church, you can, get, you can join the church by believer's baptism, baptism by immersion. A third option to join the church is that someone would come forward 
And they would say, I believe, uh, I believe that Jesus is my savior. I've received forgiveness of my sins. I've been baptized by immersion and I'm a member of another church, but I can't get my letter of recommendation from them. I need to come by statement of faith. And the reason that someone might come by statement of faith is they belong to a church that, that isn't in friendly cooperation with um, a Southern Baptist church. So maybe it's a non-denominational church and we just couldn't get get a letter that says you were a member there, or maybe you belong to a church that no longer exists. They closed their doors. And so we're just going to take your word for it, that you were baptized by immersion of similar faith. Another option is that you desire membership by letter. So you've professed Jesus as your savior. You've been baptized by immersion and you are a member of another church in good standing. And you built, feel like God is calling you to join this church. So my family, we did this. We came from Mississippi. I was serving a church in um, Alabama. And when we joined Lone Oak First Baptist Church, we came by statement of letter, by, um, by letter from that church. So the church secretaries sent a letter to Eastside Baptist Church in Pearl, Mississippi and said, hey, do you have Scott Thomas, Carly Thomas, and their son on record as being baptized members of your church? To which they responded, yes, please take them. <laughs> and they got my letter. As simple as that. That other is just a place for us to write prayer requests. So why am I giving you this? Let me explain to you. And worship team, you guys can make your, your way up. Those leading in our, our invitation. Let me explain to you why I'm giving you this card. And you haven't joined this church and it's time. It's time for you to make a commitment. It's time for you to make a commitment. You've been coming to this church. Maybe you haven't been baptized. And I just want to take one. I just want to take an extended, it's a complicated process. It's not that complicated. Fill out your own card and bring it to me and, and we'll talk. Decision for Jesus participate in believers baptism and you need to join a church where you can commit and we can commit to you and if that's you I want to invite you during the invitation not yet but during the invitation I want to invite you to come forward for believers baptism profess Jesus as your savior the second reason is because sharing requires an intentional decision like, it would be so good if we just naturally evangelized everyone. But the fact of the matter is, is hard. And I want you to, if you are, if you've received Jesus, if you've been baptized, and if you're a member of this church, I want you to take this card during the invitation, and I want you to go to the name line, and I want you to write the name of a lost person that you feel like the Lord is leading you to share Jesus with. And then I want you to take this card and I want you to start praying over it every day. God, I'm praying that you would save so-and-so. God, I'm praying that you would give me a unique opportunity to share Jesus with so-and-so. Lord, I'm praying that you would surround so-and-so with godly men and women to share the gospel with them. Lord, I'm praying that one day we can celebrate so-and-so coming to faith and being baptized. God, I'm praying for the day that so-and-so can be saved, be baptized, and they can become a member of our church. And I want you to put the name of someone that's lost on that card. And I want you to stick it in your Bible. Tape it to the mirror in your restroom where you can see it every single day and pray for the salvation of that lost person. 
I heard the story. I've told this before, and it's so strong. I heard the story of a young couple. They were young uh, married folks. This story took place about 50 years ago. They got married. They started attending church together. And during one of the sermons, the pastor invited the couple to invited couples to share their testimony, husband and wife to know how each one of them got saved. And so the wife shared her faith with uh, her husband. This is how I got saved. And then she asked the husband to share his faith and he couldn't share it. He never made a decision for Jesus. And so she evangelized him and asked him if he wanted to receive Jesus as his savior. And he said, you know what? I'm good with going to church, but I'm just not sure if I want to do that. I want to have to go, you know, I'll have to change some things in my life. I'm going to have to go in front of all those people. And, I just, and she's like, you don't have to go in front of people to get saved. You just have to receive Jesus. Like, just trust him for your salvation. And he was like, you know what? I'm not, I'll go to church and I'll be, you know, I'll lead our family, but I'm not going to get saved right now. And so one Sunday after church, this young lady, she walked down the aisle after the service was over. She walked down the aisle and she grabbed one of these clipboards. And most churches will have these. It's a clipboard with membership cards on it. It's what you have. So that when people come down the aisle to make a decision, the ministers will fill out that card for them. She went down after the service and she grabbed a membership card when nobody was looking and she filled out she left the date blank she filled out the name she filled out the address for her husband she put the husband's phone number she put his birth date and she checked the boxes accepts Jesus desires baptism and desires membership and then she put that card in her Bible and she started praying every day that her husband would get saved, that he would get baptized, and that he would become a member of the church. Every day he started, she started praying that. Now, over the next weeks, her husband came to church. He had always been a church goer. He just was lost. He started coming to church, and they would come to church every single Sunday. As a matter of fact, her husband never missed church. He would always come. He would sit in his pew week after week. They had a child, he would bring the family to church. A good husband, I mean, he was a good guy. He would come to church with his family, he would bring his children. They had a second child, he brought his, both of his children to church, he brought his wife. Week after week, they came to church, they were faithful, they were good. And you know what that woman did? Every single day, for years, she prayed for him. And so she prayed day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, that her husband would get saved, that he'd get baptized, that he'd become a member of the church. And he continued coming to church as a lost person. One Sunday, 40 years had passed. One Sunday, the kids had grown, they had moved out. They started having babies of their own. It was just her and her husband coming to church, and he was still coming to church as a lost person. He was sitting in his pew one Sunday... And she said that he was, from the beginning of the service, he was physically uncomfortable. He was just like squirming in his seat. You know, and at that age, you don't, you don't know if he just needs to go to the bathroom or something. Why was he squirming? But he was just squirming in his seat the whole time, just physically uncomfortable. And she was like, what are you doing? And he was like, I'm just, you know, just shoving her off. And the invitation came. And the pastor presented an invitation. He said, if you were a sinner that doesn't have Jesus, you're going to die and you're going to go to hell. But you don't have to. If you'll simply receive the free gift of Jesus Christ in your life, you can be saved. And if you want to be saved, I want to invite you to come forward. And I want you to make the decision to be baptized. And I want to invite you to join the church. And so the service ended. The pastor offered the invitation and the man leaned over to his wife and he said, I'm going to go forward. 
And she said, I'm right behind you. So the invitation started. The music came on. Everybody stood up. The man stepped out of the aisle, stepped forward to walk down. The woman grabbed her Bible. She was just trotting right behind him. He got down to the front and reached out and took the pastor's hand. The pastor said, what brings you forward today? He said, I'm coming forward to be saved, to be baptized, and to join the church. He said, praise the Lord, brother. We've been praying for you. He said, I'm going to invite you to step right over here. We're going to fill out a membership card. And at the close of the service, we're going to introduce you to the church. And just as they were about to step over, that wife reached into her Bible and she pulled her card out. And she said, there's no need. I've already got it. She said, every day for 40 years, I've prayed over this card. For my husband to be saved, for my husband to be baptized, and for my husband to become a member of the church. And the only thing that's missing is the date. She said, I don't mind filling it in. Church, I want to invite you today to make a decision for Jesus. And if you already have Jesus in your heart and you've been baptized and you are a member of the church, I want to invite you to begin praying. Who do you need to share Jesus with? And would you begin praying for them to come? I invite you where you are to stand. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. At the close of that prayer, if you need to make any decision, you can step out and step forward and we will be glad to receive you. Some of you, you need to bring your own membership card this morning and we cannot wait to receive you. Father, thank you for the morning that we've had to worship the opportunity to be in your word and now God, the opportunity to respond. I pray, Father, that we would be obedient. There are men and there are women in this room who have for years, God, rejected the opportunity to receive Jesus as their Savior. And I pray, God, that today they would get saved. And there's some who have come to faith, but they've been fearful of stepping out to receive baptism. I pray that they would come forward. And there are some, Lord, that have attended this church for a long time, but they need to join the church and put their commitment here at Lone Oak. I pray that they would respond during this invitation. So Lord, lead us to respond as you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen. The invitation's open. Who needs to respond?